First we'll sing Jesus Loves Even Me, number 689, okay? We'll be looking at a variety of Bible verses, just as is common in a study like this. Of course, today we're in the study of man, anthropology again, and I would like for us to start out with Psalm 100, verse 3. Everybody go to Psalm 100, verse 3. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, his people, and the sheep of his pasture. That is a key verse, if you will, along with, there would be many others. This study Man didn't come about through evolutionary processes, of course. We understand that. That's why we're gathered together here today. If it, <clears throat> I suppose if <clears throat> someone disagreed with that, they would struggle being here. However, we take the Bible at face value. What the Bible says, we believe is true. Was there an eyewitness to these things? Yes, there was. God was the eyewitness. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit were eyewitnesses to these things, including, by the way, our last study, angelology. The angels apparently were present according to Job chapter 38. They were eyewitnesses to these things. So, <clears throat> evolutionary processes, there were no eyewitnesses, of course. And there are many ways that that all breaks down. So, as far as review goes, 
up at the top of your page, your handout, angelology, I'm sorry, anthropology. Anthropology is a compound of two Greek words. Anthropos, which means what? Human. Human, that's right. And logos, or logos, which means word. word. That's right. So anthropology is words or teachings about humankind. Last week we looked at some non-biblical views and began to explore the biblical view, and we'll continue that when we're back from Pasco, but also today. So number two, last week we looked at the origin of man. Number two, the composition of man. <clears throat> Remember the last point last week is man is distinct from all other creatures. Do you remember that from last week? It would be on your handouts. There's one kind of flesh for animals and one kind of flesh for man. That's just talking of the physical body. What about the non-physical parts of man? Are we distinct from all other creatures? Yes, we are. God created us in his image. We'll be looking at that in a little while. I mean, pretty soon. Anyway, here are some of those distinctions. A, letter A, the image of God in man. Some Bible passages tell of this imago dei. That's, the, of course, the Latin. And so let's look at those verses. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. I'll ask for a volunteer to read those. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then we'll go to chapter 5 and so on. Anyway, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 amazing that God would do that, that he would put his fingerprint upon us. Let's see that a little further developed in chapter 5, verse 1. Someone please read that. Thank you very much. Chapter 9, verse 6. After the flood, everybody, everyone. Chapter 9, 6. Okay, was that chapter 9, verse 6? Okay, I couldn't hear it. Thank you, Barb. That's fine. No, uh, let's go to Colossians 3, verse 10 in the New Testament. Colossians 3, verse 10. Colossians 3, 10. Is there a volunteer to read that? Okay. So in this context, the image has to do with a new man or renewed and knowledge. So it has something to do more with the immaterial makeup of man than it does the material. So, let's keep going. James 3.9. We've been in James now for several weeks in our study, in our sermons. James 3.9, it says, <clears throat> Therewith bless we God, that would be with our tongue, our mouth, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. <clears throat> so, there, and that's not an exhaustive list, but the image of God and man is mentioned throughout the Bible, isn't it? What does it mean? What is this image, number two, under letter A? What is this image? Right away, it is not a physical likeness or image. It is not a physical likeness or image. What? You know what? I'll tell you what. When I was first a Christian, I thought, 
Well, maybe God sitting up on his throne in heaven has long flowing white hair and a big beard. And even though I didn't have a big beard yet, when Anna knew me when I got saved, I had a very scruffy, scraggly little thing. Anyway, um, and he has two arms and hands, you know. I, I somehow envisioned that God took his shape and gave it to us when I read about these things. It's not true. It's not a physical image. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Everybody go there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It's not a physical image that God has given us. It's something else. Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God... That is a way of saying he was actually 100% fully God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And what? Took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Sean covered this in the study of Christology, but for our study, that tells us that God took on our physical form and likeness, not the other way around. When Jesus Christ came from heaven and was born in Bethlehem, he had arms and feet and fingers. And Now, we realize that Jesus Christ was able to appear to be, in every way, to us, human prior to that, with a physical body, seemingly, and arms and legs and all of that. But, no, the idea is, God doesn't have shape or um, two legs and two arms as we do. That's not the point. Now, in the person of Jesus Christ, he does. But until then... He did not. So it was, it can't be a physical likeness or a physical image. It has to be something else. Let's look at the elements, number three, of the image of God in man. Okay? Number A, or letter A, lowercase a, the regal aspect. It's a regal aspect. R-E-G-A-L, regal. God is supreme ruler. Yet we have responsibilities too, don't we? As Valerie just read for us in Genesis 1, verse 26, God gave us responsibilities to have dominion over the earth. And Psalm 8, verse 6, go there. Psalm 8, 6, everyone. The sixth verse says, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. That's man, of course, verse five. Four and five, I mean. What is man that thou art mindful of him? So here we see that one aspect of the image that God has given us is to have a rule over this world, and I would say it this way, dominion means care of the earth. It doesn't mean 
taking it back from Satan as we saw last week in our evening time about the uh, New Apostolic Reformation. They, they are teaching what they call dominionism or dominion theology where Adam, when he sinned, lost this dominion and now it's Satan's dominion and we're to take it back from Satan. No, it has to do with the care of the... God gave Adam instructions about caring for the garden immediately following this in Genesis 1.26. So anyway, that is one aspect. We, God is the perfect ruler and I realize we're fallen humans. So, but we do have responsibilities to rule in our homes and our church family and, and, and of course, in, in our world. If, if you owned a lot of acreage, you, ha- you would have to care for that. That is part of the picture, the image that God has placed in us. It's a regal aspect. The second one is intellectual aspect. God is omniscient. You know how to spell that. Omniscient, yet we are given, we're given knowledge too. We have knowledge above the creatures. We have been given by God a dominion over all the creatures. That was the first one, but we also have knowledge that the animals don't have. Not even close. It's incredible. You know, let's say, let's take something that is in our day and age now much more simple than it was when it was built. The Golden Gate Bridge. Can animals do that? Come on, you guys. No. God has given us some knowledge. His is perfect. Ours is marred by sin. Okay. The third one is the emotional aspect. God expresses feelings. And so do we. Okay? God is a being with emotions. And he has given us that. That's one of the aspects of the image of God and man. You know, we say in even secular universities that man has intellect, emotion, and will. Right? Yeah, that, that is true. That's how it, part of the anthropology study is taught in even secular schools. Yes, God has emotion. It's perfect. Ours, too. We have emotions, and I see it all the time. I've seen it this morning already here. What are some of God's emotions that we share with him? Joy. Pardon? Joy. Joy? Okay, very good. Thank you. Anger. Did you say anger? Okay. God has a righteous anger. And it's just exactly right. Ours isn't always right, but yeah, we do get angry. Others? Yes, Juanetta? Oh, you pointed at Laura? Oh, love. That's right. Absolutely. We'll be actually touching a little bit on that, but yes, love. We, we have that feeling toward others, and God's feeling toward us is not marred by sin. Ours is, but... We still share that with him, don't we? There are many. Okay, just to get your thinking going, I know I need to keep going, otherwise we won't finish this today. But now you have the idea. Letter C, under elements of the image of God, is the emotional aspect. The fourth one, letter D, is the volitional aspect. That has to do with 
God willing to do something. God decrees and God wills, and we read that throughout the Bible, and we do as well, don't we? We determine to do something and set out in a path or a course to do that. We, we think it through, we think of the pros and cons, we decide whether that is a course we want to take, and we work in that direction. We have will or volition as well as God. God certainly has revealed out throughout the Bible. According to his will, he saved us, remember? And there are many other passages like that. We have been given that by God as well. That's part of the, one of the elements of the image of God in us. Letter E, the moral aspect. The moral aspect. The creatures can't do any of these things, but God has given it to us as part of the image of God in us. The moral aspect. God is perfect in all of his qualities. Perfect. Yet he has chosen to share with us many of them, though ours are marred by sin. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. Here, the wisdom of Solomon has been put on the, on the page for us. Ecclesiastes 7, the 29th verse, last verse of that chapter, says, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright. In the beginning, God made man without sin, and I would say Adam and Eve, before they chose to rebel against God, were upright, perfect in their moral standards, but they have sought out many inventions. Solomon could speak to that, and it's true. Ecclesiastes 7.29 These are often called by theologians communicable attributes of God. Those attributes, those moral qualities of God that he has shared with us, we've already talked about love, haven't we? We've already talked about that one. And I'll give you verses for each of these, and I'm watching the clock. So anyway, these may be called the communicable attributes of God. What are some other qualities that God has shared with mankind? Uh, in yesterday's Days of Praise, Saturday, it, it <laughs> listed several for us. I don't know if you caught that. But here is yesterday's Days of Praise. The mercy of the Lord is the title. The verse is Psalm 145.8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion slow to anger and of great mercy. There's several listed right there just in one verse, Psalm 145, verse 8. So we, we see that part of the image of God in us is he's shared some attributes with us that he possesses that are perfect. Yes, ours are still marred by sin, but can we express as I just read, I should have any... Mercy. Can we express mercy? Yes, we can. 
I suppose everyone in this room, at one time or another, and hopefully more than one time, have shown mercy to someone else who didn't deserve it. We could have squished them or whatever, but we didn't. We chose not to because we care about them more than the circumstance or the moment, if you will. That would be mercy. How about... Okay, I'll ask you. What are some of the other qualities? Some of those other attributes of God. Okay, we're, we're not omnipotent. We can do a lot of things, but we're not omnipotent. We're not omnipresent. I've said I'd like to be bipresent or tripresent. That'd be fun. But God doesn't grant that to us. Those are attributes that belong to God alone. But many of them also he shares with us. What are some of the others? We talked about mercy. What's that? Compassion. Compassion. That was in that verse, wasn't it? Does God show us compassion? Yes, he does. How about, man, do we show compassion to others? I hope we do. Many have shown compassion to me. My sweetheart above all else (laughs) has shown compassion to me. Yeah. What's another one? Yes, Juanetta. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Yep. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. That, that we should be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. That's right. Forgiveness. Yes, Juanetta. Oh, Denise. Yes. <laughs> I'll throw one out there. I've asked Monty Level to teach something he did about 14 years ago here. And the ministry of grace. God is gracious to us. And we can, and the Bible tells us in several places that we can minister grace to others as well. It's one of those attributes that God has shared with us. It's part of the image of God and man. What's another one, anyone? Yes, Joshua. Patience. Patience, okay. God is perfect in his patience. He knows when to change things up and when not. We're not perfect in that, but we should be patient with each other. That's right. Long-suffering even, similarly. Yeah. Any others that you can think? Yeah, Laura. What was that? Understanding. understanding? Okay. I, under, I think I understand what you're saying. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, very good. God understands us perfectly. He knows our thoughts are far off, the Bible tells us. So even before we think them, we're not like that. We don't have that aspect of it or that ability, but we can be understanding with others. It's similar to compassion as well. Okay, faithfulness is another one. God is perfect in his faithfulness. We can be faithful to him and to others. There are many. So now that you're thinking, do you realize that the image of God and man is not physical? It's other than physical, which brings us to the compound nature of man. 
compound nature of man, letter B, right in the middle of the page. I, I'm sure you realized we were going to have to get to this in our study in anthropology. And there are several views by theologians that do fit scripture. Not all of them would agree with each other. However, the scriptures do agree in many ways to these. Dichotomy means a division into two parts. It's not complicated. By the way, the material part and the immaterial part, we've been talking somewhat about that. The material part's the body, and by definition, to be human, you have to have a body. Did you know that? By definition, to be human, you have to have a body. You're not a human if you don't. Okay? That's our material makeup. So dichotomy means a division into two parts. The immaterial is multifaceted. I mean, we have a soul, a spirit, a heart, a mind. We'll talk a little bit more about that. It's multifaceted. So, just as my eyes have a different function than my ears do, and my nose has a different function than my feet, even though they get reversed once in a while. You know that old saying. Anyway, our physical bodies are multifunctional, aren't they? So is our immaterial makeup. Multifunctional. Okay? There are some good theologians that just say we're dichotomous. We are just material and immaterial parts. And the immaterial parts are many. Similar to, of course, from our skin and bones and organs and so on. Anyway, let's leave that for now and go to trichotomy, which is the most common view. Trichotomy means a division into three parts. Okay? A division into three parts. People go quickly to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. So let's do that. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Yep, I'm looking at the clock. 1 Thessalonians 5, the 23rd verse. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Body, soul, and spirit. Okay? The common, I would say this, the most common view among theologians is we're a trichotomous being made up of three parts. Okay? There is another verse that is often cited, but it doesn't quite fit this, and that's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You remember that the word of God is sharp, or quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I'm going to John. Wow, I just went past First John. I'm going back to Hebrews chapter 4. Let's go there, everyone. It doesn't quite fit the trichotomous picture, but this is 412. 
For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. That would be two of the parts. And the joints and the marrow, that would be the material or body parts. And is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's a verse that is commonly cited proving, if you will, a proof text that we're trichotomous. By the way, because of this aspect, or this, I'm sorry, this view, there are some people that say that's the image of God and man, that we're body, soul, and spirit, just like there is the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That really does not fit with Scripture, but that has been posited by those who haven't really studied a lot. At any rate, we do have a body. We do have a soul. We do have a spirit. That's absolutely true. The word body, A, if you will, under number two, trichotomy, a, uh, lowercase a is body. There are several Hebrew nouns translated body in the English, but the primary Greek noun translated body is soma. And it is, it, like the Old Testament Hebrew word, are, is very broad. It, it is used in a lot, of, a lot of ways. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6.19. Okay, since you're in the New Testament, we'll stay there for a few minutes. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. I'm sure you'll recognize this. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, that soma, and in your spirit, which are God's. There, it's body and spirit. Okay. Second Corinthians 5, verse 8. Paul is looking forward to going to heaven, by the way. And so can you, and so can I. And in, there are days that I really look forward to that. Second Corinthians 5, let's start at verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, the soma, and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, the soma, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Hmm. Interesting. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, this physical body will most likely be in the grave still. There is a distinction between the body. Once, we're, once we die, we're absent from this body and we're present with the Lord. Our immaterial parts are present with the Lord. And I realize that's a different study, but there is, there is some sort of intermediate body that we will possess. It's not that we're just floating around like a, a puff of air, a ghost or something. That's not it. But at any rate, that's the body part. What about letter B, lowercase b, the soul? In the Hebrew, it's nephesh, and 
the Greek, you'll recognize the word suke, and it looks like it's psyche, if you will, kind of. The soul departs at death, by the way, throughout the Bible. He gave up the ghost or the soul, it, and that, the soul is that which makes us alive. Now, it is very difficult to discern between the soul and the spirit, and I don't know that we should try to. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that there is, the, the word of God divides even, even that aspect, the soul and the spirit. Let's go to the letter C, that's spirit, and that's ruach in the Hebrew, and pneuma in the Greek, and we all understand that means breath or wind. So when God breathed into Adam after forming him of the dust of the ground, he became a living soul. It was that spirit part that God breathed into man, making him alive also. So the soul and spirit both make us living. The body without either would be, I guess, a puddle. You understand all, that part of it. Let's go to Ryrie, page 105, and read at the bottom. In Ryrie's book, page 105, the bottom paragraph, okay? It is probably, is everybody there? I had my bookmark, so I'll give you a moment. Ryrie 105. Okay? Here's what Dr. Charles Ryrie wrote after pondering this for decades and studying it as he did. He says, it is probably best to view the immaterial part of man in the same manner. Okay, that would be referring to the physical having different functions. Soul, spirit, heart, mind, will, and conscience are all facets of man's immaterial nature. And it is often difficult to make hard and fast distinctions between them. It seems to be an oversimplification to say that man is body, soul, and spirit, for soul and spirit do not fully categorize the immaterial part of man, and they are not always distinct. For instance, we are told to love God with the soul in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, and the flesh wars against the soul in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. The spirit can magnify the Lord. Luke 1, verses 46 and 47. Mary said that. And yet it can partake of corruption, like the soul. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. The spirit can partake of corruption. So, in some instances, it appears that the spirit is related to higher aspects of man's nature, and all men, including the unsaved, have a spirit. Even the unsaved have a spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.11. Okay? So that is a little background there for both dichotomy and trichotomy. Some have proposed a multichotomous view of man's makeup. We have a physical makeup and we have a non-physical that includes soul and spirit and heart and conscience and mind and will. Okay, that's interesting. Let's go to 
Proverbs 4, verse 23. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Someone please read that when you get there. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Our heart is this... It's not, we're not talking about the physical heart, even though the Greek word is cardia. It is, of course, an immaterial part of our makeup where we need to protect it, guard it, keep it from influences that will harm us spiritually because out of it are the issues of life. The heart is the seat of our emotion. That's the way it's described in the spiritual aspect. Our immaterial part is that heart is the seat of our emotions. It it drives us in the right way or the wrong way. So we need to guard it, okay? We need to protect it and keep it before God, doing that which pleases Him. So that's another facet of our immaterial nature is our heart. Conscience is another one. Go to John 8, verse 9 in the New Testament. John 8, the ninth verse. And you'll see this. John 8, Jesus speaking here, of course. And the ninth verse tells us, And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the least. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. They had a conscience. Did you, you remember the account here? They were accusing her of adultery, and Jesus told them, any of you that's without sin, you cast the first stone. But they had a conscience, so they, they left the scene. I'll give you a couple of others, and then we need to get on to letter C. We have a mind, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Our mind is, we're not talking about the gray matter inside our cranium, <laughs> not the physical part of it, but that which causes us, I guess, that which allows us to think. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. we have a mind. We have a will. Romans 7, verse 18. We can will to do good or we can will to do bad. And we've already talked a little bit about that. So there are many facets of our immaterial nature beyond even what I just suggested, okay? So for the sake of time, let's go to letter C, the transmission of the soul. Wow, that's a big subject, but I'll go through it as quickly as I can, okay? The transmission of the soul. How do we get our immaterial makeup? How do we get that which makes us distinct from all other creatures? Hmm, that image of God in us, if you will. There's the pre-existence theory. Plato held to that. Philo, Origen, those ancient philosophers. The idea of the pre-existence theory is, and we don't know where it came from per se in their way of thinking, there's a pool of souls somewhere out there. Okay. It may have been created by God in the past, but they're not even sure. Or maybe it eternally existed. There's this pool of souls out there somewhere. And at conception, 
A soul is taken from that pool and placed into the new baby. That's the pre-existence theory. When one dies, the soul returns to the pool. What does that allow for, everyone? Reincarnation. Somebody, I think they said it. I don't know who said it. That's right, reincarnation. And that is definitely not biblical, but it is a theory about how we got, get our souls. Then the, probably the most, on, on the surface, the most appealing would be number two, the creation theory. Theologians Hodge, and I'll name some others in a few moments, hold to this view that God creates a new soul at each conception. God creates one right then, ex nihilo, and places it into the new baby. Here's something to think about. Then how do we get our sin nature? That's a problem. God doesn't create a soul with a sin nature because God's perfect. He wouldn't do that. So that, that's a head-scratcher. And here's another head-scratcher about the creation theory in regard to get how we got our souls. And then there are other groups that believe this also, like the Roman Catholics, the Mormons, and the Reformed churches. So, okay, that catches my attention. The third theory is the tradition theory. How many of you have heard of that before? Okay, Juanetta has, and Joshua. Did you raise your hand, Joshua? Yeah, the tradition theory. Many in our circles hold to the number three here. The word tradition means to be led across, to be led across, one of the same kind. And propagation, it has to do with propagation. So the tradition theory states the body and soul are within the parents and passed on to the children. Both the body and the soul. So, of course, when each of us or any of us had children in our homes, in our marriages, through the parents, and maybe specifically the father, that's a, that would take a lot more time than we have right now, but through the parents, God made, God created back in the Garden of Eden, I mean, back when Adam and Eve were created, the ability to, for them, to unite and conceive and have a son named Cain who was not only given a body at that moment where the, the cells started to divide into two and then four and then eight and then 16, but also a soul. God created in Adam and Eve the ability to pass on a soul to Cain and to Abel and to Seth and to you and to me and to our kids. That's the idea of the tradition view. By the way, it solves the sin problem also. Where did we get our sin nature? From mom and dad. Basically is an oversimplification of that answer. There are some verses, and then we'll wrap up, that seem to lean in this direction. Can we be dogmatic about this? No, we can't. This is somewhat of a mystery to us, and yet 
I wanted to introduce this in part of our anthropology study. How do we get our souls? Go to Genesis 2, verse 7. We've already looked at chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which apply, but let's go to chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, 7 says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Let's now go to chapter 5, verse 3. And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. See that? Now go to Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Verses 9 and 10. This is an interesting passage of Scripture, of course. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 say, And as I may say, so say, I'm sorry, As I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek met him. How many generations was it from Abraham to Levi? Okay, well, there was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Levi. Four generations. So there are some passages that kind of indicate the tradition theory would explain how we got our souls. I haven't given a whole lot of time for discussion Does that raise any questions for anyone? The transgressions of the fathers are visited upon the children and the children's children under the third and fourth generation. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I think I understand. Out of the sin problem, God should be left out of it. Okay, somehow, I understand. And this is probably beyond the capability of our minds to grasp. But somehow... Generations and generations and generations back all the way to Adam and Eve, God created them with that capacity. So God is still in the picture, but it, yeah, I understand. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together in class. I ask you that you would help us to love you more for who you are, that you are perfect in all of your attributes and all of your ways. And thank you for sharing with us some of your nature, your uh, your attributes even. May we be merciful to others as you're merciful to us. May we be gracious to others as you are to us. And loving as you are perfectly to us. May we love others and show you, show, I guess I would ask Heavenly Father that we would live in such a way that pleases and honors and glorifies you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.